When my father, Frank Eric Upton, was three years old, his mother took him to visit his grandmother. She never came to pick him up. The fourth of nine, he was the only one shipped off to live with relative. Long after he had passed away, his younger sister told me that the reason my grandmother had done it was because he was a very sickly child, and she was afraid that my grandfather would kill him because he was such a brutal man. I don't know if my father ever knew the reason he was shipped off. He never told me. And I never learned how he felt about it either. Now that would have been a story, right? Dad went on to be the only one in his family to graduate from college. And doing that during the Depression was a feat. That we heard a lot about. <laughs> he would go to school one semester, and then he would stop and work and raise money, and then he would go to school for the next semester. So one of those times that he was working, he was a door-to-door -door salesman selling pots and pans. Fast forward 45 years, and he was an antique salesman, and people would call him and say, I've got something for you to look at, Frank. You might want to buy it for your store. And he got quite a chuckle out of meeting the woman that he had sold pots and pans to in the 30s, who wanted to sell them back to him. <laughs> and of course, he did buy them. He was very proud of the fact that he got a degree in agriculture from the University of Maine. And there was never a question that the four of us were going to go to college. The only question was what we were going to major in. He loved to tell how he got his bachelor's in the morning and lost it in the afternoon because the day he graduated from college, he married my mother, Helen. Dad had a lot to deal with over the years, and we had our disagreements, but we were always able to talk or argue. One time, a year or so after he had passed away, there had been something on the news. He and I talked news all the time, politics. And I went to the phone and called him. And this wonderful gentleman answered the phone. And I realized that wasn't my dad, of course. He had been dead. But the other gentleman was so warm and kind to me when he realized what happened. So today I wish I could talk to my dad, and I wish you could all meet him, and you would have gotten a kick out of him, or else he would have irritated the heck out of you one or the other. We gather today to listen in on conversations about significant experiences in our participants' lives. This service was inspired by NPR's StoryCorps production, which I listen to each Friday morning. StoryCorps is David Icy's creation, which started in 2003 in a small sound booth in Grand Central Station. His mission is to preserve and share humanity's stories in order to build connections between people and create a more just and compassionate world. 
And that so remind me of our own UUFHC's mission statement. StoryCorps has expanded to four cities, the World Trade Center site, and two mobile units which travel all over the country. They have recorded over half a million interviews which have been archived at the American Folk Life Center in the Library of Congress, Congress for the last 15 years. IC has also published five books which I have read and I highly recommend. They're just jam-packed full of stories. The stories, enjoyment of stories has never left me and I'm looking forward to hearing UUFC live story core today. We're so pleased that Beth and her dad, Len, Andrew and Erica, and Shauna and Sarah are telling their stories. I felt that a living room setting rather than a sound booth would be more conducive for our listening. By way of introduction to Len and Beth's story, she says, about 11 years ago, our family experienced one of those life-altering moments that brought the concept of mortality into focus front and center. Although one member of our family experienced the greatest immediate impact, no one in the family was left untouched by the event. As we unpack and revisit the details of that moment in time, we will reflect on the lasting impact and lessons learned in the years since then. First, Pop, thanks for doing this. <clears throat> um, I've been thinking about the heart attack you had just a couple weeks after your 70th birthday. It was 11 years ago now, but in some ways it feels like a lifetime ago. Would you tell the story of, how, of your experience again? Every time I go to a community theater, <clears throat> I read in the bulletin, somebody there is thrilled to be with that particular uh, city. Well, I'm thrilled to be here this morning, given the fact that, as Beth just said, a little over, about 11 and a half years ago, on Mother's Day, on Mother's Day, 2007, at about 10 o'clock at night, I couldn't breathe. <laughs> it's kind of a nasty thing to, just before going to bed. However, two things about that. I'm sorry. Two things about that. One is, uh, on that particular night, I could have gone to bed and, and not awakened. You know, that's, that's the other possibility. And two days after that particular event, we had scheduled to be in Scotland. And I would have been on a plane, or we would have wound up in Scotland, and who knows what kind of medical attention would be available at that point. So, again, I'm thankful that... Did it, it occurred at that particular time, so we could take care of it. Fifteen minutes after uh, Alicia called an ambulance, I was on, on my way to the hospital, and um, I didn't remember very much about the night. Uh, Alicia was there, of course, with me all night, or in the, close by all night, and she was asked by a nurse at one point, Ma'am, do you know a priest or a pastor you might want to call? So we were close. I mean, it was, it was not very good, not a very good sign. So finally, at some point in the early morning hours, they discovered, and we're working on this, I'm sure, 
uh, that basically I had had a collection of fluid on the lungs. Uh, my heart was acting irregularly as a result. And therefore, uh, it had become worse and worse. And it's one of those things that creeps up on people at certain points in their life. They, you don't have to be a particular age to suffer this, by the way. Uh, it's, you can be in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, as well as in your 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, to, to have this kind of a problem. But I, being kind of an uh, uh, unaware person in terms of that, I was not aware of the fact that, two, as Beth said, two weeks before that, we celebrated uh, my 70th birthday with my cousin on Long Island and his family. And, um, and everybody surprised me. And we had uh, all of our members of the family showed up at one time to be a big surprise. And two weeks after that event, I wind up in the hospital. So I spent, I don't know whether you have other questions, I can, I can just go on here for a little bit. But uh, <laughs> anybody have an extra? <laughs> Anyhow. Um, <laughs> so I spent 12 days total in the hospital, running through one test or another, medical test, um, other kinds of tests that they were working on. And basically on the 11th day, finally, uh, actually on the 10th day, my doctor, one of my doctors, came in, heart doctor, and said, um, we have this uh, new, relatively new uh, procedure, which we can use today, uh, tomorrow, if you like, or we can have a, um, um, uh, do it the old fashioned way, have, have a pacemaker. And I said, well, what, what is the new procedure? And he described it, and it was, it's called an ablation, which today is not necessarily a new procedure anymore, but, but uh, almost 12 years ago it was. And uh, it is a procedure that had been learned in, in France, uh, developed in France, and had been in this country only a couple of years. And, his, and in his particular practice, he was the only qualified doctor in his office, so there were about 14 doctors in this particular group, but he was the only one qualified to do this procedure. So he did the procedure on the 11th day, and on the 12th day, I was released from the hospital, went home with a, um, a monitor for three weeks. Uh, so I had to have it connected every time I was falling asleep or whenever, resting, whatever. Uh, I needed to have it monitored. Uh, and. And he, as he told me, my heart would eventually come back to working normally. Um, but it took about three weeks for it to really kind of get over its, its uh, his, his history, overcome its history, and basically. The, the, the lungs were now clear. The heart was working fine after three weeks. We went back, I went back um, probably four times in the first year I was out of the hospital for more tests, just to be sure. And each time it was fine. So here we are, almost 12 years later, still working, and he, uh, he's pleased with it. At one point, uh, there, there's a segment of the operation, or the I shouldn't say operation, it's a procedure, that um, were, it's, it's a painful uh, reaction by the patient because of the, of the um, these particular hooks that they put into you are coming out of your body. And if your anesthesia has worn off, it's particularly painful. So uh, they used to have to wait in the time I, I had this procedure. They used to have to wait until uh, 
I was totally alert before they did this, before they took these particular hooks out of my body. And uh, therefore I was, you know, I was feeling, I was feeling pain at that point. Well, um, the doctor said to me a few years after the operation, he says, you know, we don't have to do that procedure anymore. We, we have a different way of doing it and we can protect you from the pain. The patient won't have to feel the pain. And I said, you want to do it again? He said, no, 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 forget it, forget it. No, no, you're, you're good, you're good for another whatever lifetime. The other thing that goes with that, just to be medically up to date here, um, I, I take Xerox, um, not Xerox, I'm sorry. Xeralto. Uh, I'm sorry. Getting my, getting my meds mixed up here. Xeralto. And there, there are two or three other uh, types of meds that do the same task as Xeralto. But as he said, when you hit 75 and you've had this kind of uh, heart problem, it's good to, to start taking Xeralto just to avoid uh, as much as possible the, the possibility of a stroke. So when you get to be beyond 75, as he said, the stroke issue becomes greater for the patient by 5% each year. So at any rate, that's so far my story. Thanks. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I, I know that things have changed. A lot has changed in your life yes. since then. Um, yeah. What Can you talk to that a little yes. bit? What, what oh, yes. Changed? Um, well, there are two or three things that have changed. The first thing, I used to smoke. And while I was not a heavy smoker, any, any kind of smoke is not very good for you, I was not a heavy smoker. I still smoked before I went in the hospital. Well, after 12 days in the hospital, of course, I wasn't smoking at all. And uh, so um, I got out of the hospital, and, of course, I said to, well, maybe, I, you know, maybe I'm going to have that desire again, so I better go to CVS and get some Nicorette gum you know, or something like that, just so in, in case. Well, I bought the gum. And then I remembered that what they told me in the hospital, that the nicotine leaves your body after 12 days. So why do I need Nicorette? I'm putting, I'm putting nicotine back in with Nicorette. So I, so I took the, the gum back and exchanged it for other gum. <laughs> <laughs> Wrigley Spearmint or whatever it was, some old-fashioned type. Anyhow, uh, so that was one big thing, one big change for sure. The other thing is I got back into singing. Uh, basically a lot. I, I now sing with three different groups um, and the AARP chorus which is a small group of about 35 people and we sing lighthearted stuff. We, we give 10, or 10 concerts in the fall and then 10 more concerts in the spring. Then the other one is a big choral group that I sing with out of about 100 people and that's much more of a, um, a sophisticated kind of singing I should say. And then the third kind of course would be the church variety. So there are three different groups and I've noticed over the years too, Beth, uh, just to make the point, that my voice is stronger now at 81 than it was when I was 70. And that, and I, my lungs are have passed the test of time, I guess. Uh, every time I see the doctor, I see him, uh, the same doctor that took care of me in the hospital once, once a year now, and he gives me a, a pretty thorough exam. And he says, you know, you're, you're good for another whatever. How many, how many years you stay and want to hang around? So, uh, at any rate, that's, those are a couple of things I can mention to you that are benefits of, of for me at least, is what. And then, of course, the other, the other all encompassing thing is that 
the family was there to support me every inch of the way. Beth came rushing up the same morning after this happened to be with me. Um, they live family, in Lancaster. Yeah. And the other, other members of the family all came in as they could, and including my cousin, who, by the way, uh, I had just seen two weeks before. He came rushing over from Long Island, drove over that same Monday, Monday and spent some time with me, and then drove back to Long Island that night. So he, he was, he's a, a, a cantor in, the, uh, in his uh, church. So at any rate, um, uh, th that's pretty much, I guess, rather than droning on here, I'll, li I'll leave, some, leave some time to other people too. So thank you. Thanks, Bob. I wanted to just say, from my perspective, one of the things, um, watching all that unfold and watching how you changed in your health habits and your life, um, it does make it has made me very aware of uh, trying to live a healthy life and not putting off things that you know yep. that you never know. So, um, as we said, you know, you could have been on that plane on going to Scotland and. Um, we, by the way, we did go to Scotland the next year, yeah. and we had a great time. So. <laughs> um, but I also wanted to say, um, I think it also set me on the, on the path that I've been on since, sort of was started on at that time, but it gave me courage to head down that path. Um, I've made a practice of trying to live as fully as possible in the moment um, and to cherish time with family and friends as much as possible. You never know how much time you're going to get. And I'm so grateful for these past 11 years with you and mom. The song says, children will listen. But the moral of this story is that parents must listen. Andrew and Erica will discuss what it means to be an LGBTQ youth and the way that parents and loved ones can make it easier or harder. So my name is Erica, and my pronouns are she and her. I am Andrew, and my, my pronouns are he and his. And because it's relevant to our story that we're going to be talking about today, I identify as straight. And I identify as gay. So let's start with how did that evolution happen for you? Oh, it was just a roller coaster. Um, so in... Sixth and seventh grade, I remember always watching movies and always thinking that the guys were cute. And, but I never had that same thought with the girls. But if in sixth and seventh grade, if you asked me, I would have still identified as straight. And then uh, the switch happened in eighth grade when I was talking to my friends about how I thought the guys were attractive in movies and stuff like that. And, and they said to me, hey, you might be bi because my... And I thought about that for a little bit. And I actually agreed with them, so I identified as bi for a little bit, and then now my now boyfriend asked me out, and I've been able to realize that I actually never had an attraction towards girls, so now I identify as gay. So it, it was a bit of a gradual process for you, yeah. and one of the things that I know that was very interesting is, as your parent, we never had that, you know, sit down in the living room, dear Simon, coming out moment. It, it was a kind of gradual evolution with us, too. Was that intentional? It wasn't. It was just my background had knowing that I always had an open relationship with you guys. I knew I was in a safe place. So I just always kept you in the loop. So you were basically on the ride with me. It was a ride. <laughs> <laughs> 
And do, do you think that, what, was that a good way for you to go about it? I think it really was. And it helped me, it helped me just keep you in my life. So I wasn't keeping this huge thing from you, and then you know. It was just, a, you were just permanently in my life. So what was that evolution like in school and amongst your peers? Well, my school is very, very accepting. I, before, even when I was um, identifying as straight, I had a lot of LGBTQ friends. Um, and it's like a lot, I looked, took up like two, ah, a table and a half in the cafeteria. Um, and they were all jumping up and down happy saying, we, you joined us. And <laughs> um, so nothing really bad happened. There, there are a couple of people that um, have some trouble understanding, but I always, I always still respect them because it, it, I have opinions also, and they're respectful to me about it. So, but nothing really, nothing in school changed a lot. Have you found that? I know one of the things you've talked about is being able to come here and have this community has kind of informed how you react within your other peer groups. It does, and it makes me. When if you look back at me, whenever they say "Whomever you love, you are welcome." And if you look back at me, you'll just see a huge smile on my face. Because it just makes me so happy and make me, makes me feel so welcome. So one of the things that I think is a reality for all of us who consider ourselves in a welcome community is we're also human. And therefore, whether intentional or not, give in to saying the wrong things, doing the wrong things, not understanding always the implications of our words. So. What are some of those things, those mistakes that you wish people knew not to say? Well, there are some things that I know parents always have a, a radar are out. And I, so you're able to keep tabs on your kids of what you think they might be like in their older ages, but never base it surrounded by um, generic stereotypes. Like, don't keep tabs on if your kid wears makeup or if your kid wears nail polish, because they might not even mean what, know what that means yet in the real world. So just be aware of that. And if you are, even if you're 100% confident that your kid is LGBTQ, wait for them to tell you about it. N never force them to come out to you. Because they, honestly, they've been planning it for weeks, months, even years. So they know the exact time to tell you, the exact place to tell you, and the third thing I could say, I can tell you is, don't tell anyone else. Only they have the privilege on telling people. Well, thank you. And thank you for joining me and agreeing to do this today. And thank you for always teaching me, because that's one of my favorite things about being your mom, is learning from you. Sarah says, I've lost my brother twice once in a family rift, and a second time to death. But in his passing, we also experienced laughter. Shauna, her daughter says, and family healing. This is a story of this journey, how even in death, there can be healing. I'm Sarah. And I'm Shauna. Rickerhoff. <laughs> 
Um, and I'm, I'm, uh, I hope I can get through this okay. I've been waiting. I've been wanting to tell this story since it happened, but um, the tears are here today, and part of it's for our baby alpaca. So I do have a, a picture that I want to share, and I know you can't see it really, but it's a picture of my oldest brother in the middle, and, and next to him, one of them is my brother Jerry. So Tom and Jerry... Yes, feel free to laugh or cry as it comes along. And the other brother is Kurt. And um, so this is a story about our family, but mainly about Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Um, my mom died about 14 years ago, and my mom was very precise in her will. This goes here, this goes there, all that stuff. But she left one piece of property, a farm, to, a very small piece of property. Yes. But the property in the family for years, it was my grandmother's and passed down to my father and then my, my mom and then five siblings. So I have three brothers and a sister. And one brother, the um, younger of the three, had already died before my mom. So his property went to his sons and my cousins. Yeah, and... Well, ultimately, I decided to buy out yeah. the cousins because right. I was very close to my grandma and, and, and very much into the family, and they were farther away. So I stepped up and said if they wanted to get, get out, I would step in as the, <clears throat> the next of kin, so to speak. Okay, I'm sorry. <clears throat> so there were five of us anyway, and some wanted to buy, some wanted to sell. Shauna and my brother Tom and I wanted to buy and my brother and, and sister, Jerry, and, and my sister wanted to sell. So the three of us, Tom, Sean, and I, spent probably a week with emails back and forth, back and forth. Well, how are we going to do this? We did an appraisal. And we finally made an offer to my brother and sister. And my brother, Jerry, totally freaked out. He wouldn't even talk about it. He just said it was unfair. And my sister's very quiet, so she, she said nothing. But uh, my brother up the uh, accounting for the farm. So he wrote himself a check for our offer without any further discussion and left the family. He sent an email saying, consider me gone. And he wrote a letter to my brother Tom and what do you have to say about that? Well, oh, and his family and basically my, my uncle is a very religious man and a very um, proud family person, very, very patriarchal. And so my uncle basically damned him, <laughs> which is not yeah. a very nice thing. So obviously this is, it, it was very shocking to me because I stepped in to try and help out, just resolve something and keep a part of our history. And it turned out to be, went completely upside down. And before we even had a chance to say, well, this was just a starting point to have a discussion, we didn't even know what to do, he just wouldn't even talk anymore. And it was, it was completely devastating, completely devastating because it was not at all, you know, we had actually a week of, of just talking about, you know, it was all good-spirited, and then it just went south, and we were like, wow, how that happened without even having a chance to work it through. Just totally cut off communication. And um, it was just mortifying. I mean, I was mortified. I was mortified. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can hear myself quite well, apparently. <laughs> Sorry. So a year later, my brother Jerry had a heart attack and open-heart surgery. And after that, he was never well again. Right. The, the brothers finally started talking at family gatherings, but it was all just cordial. It was, very, was it. Yeah, civil, and, and it was okay. Mm -hmm. But 
So obviously we kind of got sense, it took a long time to find out that he was probably suffering from some health stuff, it just was weighing on him as, as much as anything. And, and beyond that, just that um, we always kind of said grandma, when she was around, she kind of kept everything in order, you know, told him to cut it out when they'd argue, the two brothers. But as soon as she was gone, uh, probably some of the history of their relationship kind of kicked in and the one brother who probably felt not quite as good for a long time just decided he'd had it. So just to throw a little thing in here, my mom said that they would be having breakfast, as an example, and one of the boys would say, he's looking at me, and mom would say, stop doing that. <laughs> so, Knock it off. <laughs> yeah, right. They just didn't get along, right. period. Um, and Jerry, uh, I think, was even ill before the heart attack, but uh, years before that, but we didn't know what was going on, really. And um, so he developed diabetes. He had high cholesterol, high blood pressure, um, Within two years ago, then I think, uh, his daughter died, which we, we brought here. That was hard for us to lose her. And, um, Can yeah. I throw something in here? Yeah. Can I do that? Um, I just want to say, even though there was, um, there was some tension between them, which, but it never really showed up prior to this, honestly. We, had a very, we have a very close family. And um, we used to get together for Christmases. My uncle Tom, kind of being the patriarch, he would um, have the families over, all the kids, grandkids. Like you know, so it's always a big family inclusive thing. It wasn't like we had divisions per se. So this was kind of like really in the background, and that's why it was so shocking when it came forward so strongly when we were trying to just figure out this you know eight acre little piece of property in the farm and way out in nowhere kind of thing. Right. right. So. Um, I just want to set the stage for that. So in the last couple of years, my brother um, developed COPD. I believe he started having to, to wear oxygen all the time. And then he got uh, congestive heart failure. So he was just not well. But two months ago, oh, the July. Every July, we go to Illinois for the family uh, 4th of July. Called and the annual migration. Just, right, oh exactly. Drive. <laughs> so we went this July, and I had heard from my sister, talk about communication in the family. I heard from my sister that Tom's family was concerned. They, Tom, really what it came down to, Tom wanted forgiveness before Jerry died. Right. And Jerry is getting towards the end. And we all knew it. Right. it was, and it was hard. So I used to be very close to Jerry. But when this thing happened, psh, we split, kind of. Um, it's well, never he divested. He just divested a lot from... Yeah, he just separated himself. So when we went this July, I wanted to, I tried to work on this forgiveness thing, and, and I asked Jerry several times, what's important to you? I didn't say before you die, but you know what, well, you're still on this planet, something like that. And I asked him three or four times. He only had one answer. I want to go on Route 66. That was it, every time. So I know that was his desire, but he just could not talk about the, would not talk about the family division. Um, but for the 4th of July, we had our own little, Sean and, and the kids and, and I had our own little trip. We went to 50 miles away to uh, Paris, Illinois, and Redmond, where we grew up. And we stopped at the pizza store on the way. And we got a pizza and took it to the park. We, uh, we always had, uh, what, summer picnics, I guess, yeah? Right. Yeah. Uh, we, well, we took... Uncle Jerry with us. Yeah, yeah. Right. So this is our little Route 66 thing. We, in, in part of our <laughs> annual migration, we always do the, you know, 60 mile away from Champaign, where the family is now, to 
the towns where they grew up and we see where their school was. I and mean, it's like, you know, those crazy things. You just see the same sites every <laughs> year. But we don't care. We do it anyways. And one of the stops is the grade school and right behind the grade school, which is oh, yeah. in Redmond, Illinois, where she grew up, um, which is like a town of 250 at this point, is the little eight-acre parcel. So we always go and check out the corn and see how it's doing. Right? <laughs> so he was with us. And, you know, we, we don't talk too much about the farm when he's with us. But we did the, you yeah. know, we'd make all our stops, see grandma's old house, you know, you know the routine. So he was with us the whole day. Right. Which is nice for you. Right. So we had our little trip. And he still couldn't answer my question, to my satisfaction anyway. So uh, about two months ago, um, on his way to lunch, which was his favorite thing, evidently, um, and his wife was driving, thank goodness, um, he keeled over in the car, and that was it. He was gone. And, and it was very hard for me. Yeah, it's hard now because we didn't really get that that resolution that I wanted as well. Mm. I didn't feel like I needed forgiveness. I didn't feel like I did anything wrong, but I knew it was very important to my brother. And I never had the closeness with my brother again, and I wanted that, and I wanted to address that, but it just didn't happen. So Sean and I, uh, we had a a day to get it together, and we went cross-country to Illinois. Another migration to Illinois. A couple of days. The drive. Yeah. And when we got there, Shauna... Oh, well, so we were talking on the way, because obviously you've got two days in the car together. Oh, yeah. In my life, sometimes we don't have that much time without kids around or animals or whatever else. So we were trying to catch up. We were talking about the farm. We're like, well, I wonder now if it'll be, you know, things will get better. This is kind of gives us a chance to just feel like it's released, maybe with that energy of, uh, of concern. So we were kind of looking forward to... Um, this being in the past, you know, because it's really been around every family meeting because you just can't talk openly or you're afraid you're going to say something, you know, or just, you don't even know, but just that fear is in the air. So we're kind of excited, and I'm like, we can move on. And so um, we get to, to, we stay at my mom's um, sister's house, my aunt's house, and we gather and we're kind of getting ready for the the viewing the next day, and then the following day after that was going to be the funeral. So we were there just kind of chatting about what was going to happen. Do you want me to talk about yes. that part? Yes, yeah. Okay. So I said, well, let's go ahead and um, look at the obituary that they're putting in there because, unfortunately, we've been through this a couple times in the last 18 months, so I kind of knew to look at, see what they had to say about the family and everything. So we look at it, and I'm, you know, here I am all hopeful, thinking where things are good, and I read it, and it talks about uh, my uncle and his wife and his daughter that preceded him and his son who's still alive and son-in-law and his sister and brother that are living. Our sister and two sisters are still living. Completely leaves out my uncle. Completely. And I am like Uncle Tom, uncle right? Tom. Jerry leaves out Tom, like his last little dig. And I was so mad. I'm like, how in the end can you make this thing flare up so, so you know? So I was just, I was beyond myself. I'm like, Mom, if we can't figure this out, I can't even go to this thing. I mean, I was really torn up about this early on when it happened, never having the chance to, you know, we're about talking and communicating and working through things never gave us a chance and and then in the end did not have the final word i was like oh my god so i so so i was in the corner like okay this has to come together because i I drive here for two days for this (laughs) (laughs) so i said i will call jerry's son because we were close and i called him i said well how's it going you know matter kind of whatever's and he said oh i just came back from my um daughter's wedding reception like, this is the way it usually happens in our family. <laughs> Everything happens at once. 
So finally I said, well, we looked at the obituary and Tom's not in the obituary. He said, what? He said, we looked at, we worked on this. Well, they don't, had a short time to work on it, but he said, I had several family members look at it. Looked fine. We sent it in. We said, well, Tom's not there. And he said, oh, I will correct it. I will apologize to Tom. And, and he did. Which I was still skeptical, but in the end, by the time we made it to and to the um, the viewing and everything, you know, my aunt and my cousin were both like mortified that this had happened. So the the positive thing that happened out of this is I got to see them come forward to my uncle to bridge that gap of you know apologizing like this was just this was not intentional, and it was it really felt good to see them extend even more so than if he had just been mentioned and never talked about. So that was kind of the first thing that was huge for me. Plus, I hadn't thought about this for a while, but uh, Tom's son came to, and they, that part of the family just does not participate. They, he came with his wife, and um, so this is Tom's son, and Jerry's son are very close. They used to be, and yeah, for They sure. used to be, and it's like they reunited. It was yeah, wonderful it was nice to see that, that happen. Mm-hmm. So the family kind of came together more. And um, so the next day is the funeral. And again, it's 50 miles away to the cemetery. So Sean and I were not really settled yet. Uh, we didn't have our coffee set up. We, had, we ran across to, the, to a block away to Panera, got some coffee, breakfast sandwich, got on the road, zoom, we're going. You know, like, we yeah. got to get there on time. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we passed the uh, pizza place. And I go, could we stop? And so we kept on the road. We got there. And again, it's 50 miles away. And we got there, and no one was sitting down at the graveside. And went, ah, oh, okay. So I ran to the outhouse. Which literally is an yeah. outhouse. It's a little town, tell me. Let me tell you, it's out in the country. So my sister comes up to me, and she says, I need to use the restroom, and the church is open. So we went in there, used the facilities, came out. And then uh, Tom's daughter-in-law comes up and says, didn't you see us at the dollar store? I go, what dollar store? Well, evidently, this little town only has two stores. It's the pizza place and the dollar store. They're next to each other. Yeah. And and she says, you didn't see the hearse? I went, what? And Shauna says. (laughs) And I was was like, which part? Kathy, what Kathy said. Oh, no, oh. that's later. But, but anyway, so the whole point is, is that then she continues on the story, and she's like, yeah, you didn't see the horse. It was smoking. <laughs> and, and so she can, ends up telling us the story that they were driving down, and, they're, and they pull up, and they see a hearse on the side of the road. And so they pull up and say, are you going somewhere? <laughs> this is like a little small town. Right? And they're like, yeah, we're trying to get into the, to the like, Birkenstout's um, funeral. And they're like, are you, do you mean Brinkerhoff? And they're like, yes. Oh, yeah, well, we're going there, too. So they like, this is Tom and his family, right? And Jerry's. <laughs> in the hearse and so big brothers pulling up and they're like well we're gonna follow you along so they follow him and it breaks down again so apparently it broke down about three times and finally someone else stopped by and said do you guys need help they're like yeah we're trying to make it to this funeral (laughs) (laughs) literally and um so they said okay well we're gonna call the other local um funeral home that they know and so literally they drove up another hearse they backed it back to back and they had to transfer him from one slide him into the next one and then my uncle basically basically got to um escort them to the to the graveyard and meanwhile we're all sitting there because our family you know we're all happy and didn't even realize he was late for his own funeral And, you know, and so they just show up. So she was telling us a story. We're like, no, how could we miss the smoking hearse and everything? But we were like, got to get there on time, right? So, but anyways. 
And how about the black purse? Oh, oh, so then she went on to continue. So this is in the spirit of how goofy this is. So we're all like, wow, okay, we missed that. Glad you're here. And she says, yeah, so then I realized I was missing my purse. So she called back to the dollar store and said, yeah, you know, has anybody seen a black purse? They said, yeah, there's a black hearse in the parking lot. No, 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 not the hearse. I'm looking for my purse. It's like everybody's just laughing. At this point, it's just goofier than I'll get out. And my sister comes up to me and says, well, maybe Jerry was late because I'm always late, and he wanted me to be here on time. <laughs> so it just went on it and on. It kept going, rolling, rolling. Yeah. So then the next thing is that we all take, now we get serious, right? He's here, we're all good. We sit down in our little location, and then they, they, you know, they the pallbearers, which are my cousins and everybody and some of his family, bringing him out. And they're walking over. I'm like, oh, my God, I hope they know which side's the right way because they switched him from one to the other, and how are they going to know that? So sure enough, the first the, the director says, oh, yeah, so they made him do a little march around. They had to flip around. <laughs> like, just would be just right to have him go backwards inside his grave, you know, and all this. So um, one of the things that I think that you said was what Jerry might have said or thought oh, on his right. way there. Right, well, uh, I was just saying that here again, Big Brother has to come and save his brother. So as much as he hates, he thinks he wants to hate his brother. Yep, he was there for him. But, but Sean also said Jerry was probably kicking and screaming that his brother was taking care of him again. <laughs> yeah. And um, at the end, then the, the funeral uh, owner himself came to the funeral, and he knew the family because he had taken care of uh, Jerry's daughter when she died. And he got up and apologized just amazingly, and he thanked uh, Tom and his son for being there and helping with the hearse. And, and he said, well, you know, Jerry and I had a talk on the way there, and Jerry said it was okay, that he was late. <laughs> it's all, all going to work out. Yeah. So in the end, your statement was? Oh, well, my statement was that even in, in death, there finally can be There can be healing. Even in death, there can be healing. So our family came together and healed, I think, over this experience. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I just had one more thing to share. So um, I was thinking about this reflecting when we came here too, you know, um, that, you know, through healing or through, through death there can be healing. And I just have to say that the bigger story probably for me in all this too is that some of you that know us in the last, you know, year and something, we've had a lot of death in our, not only our family, but close friends and different things like that. You know, we've been through hospice with some people and also... <laughs> continues now with this little baby alpaca but um some of the greatest healing and all this stuff that has happened it's probably me and my mom i'm gonna say that uh sean and i have been going to soul matters and we've really done some deep work and uh, and we even had a little disagreement about me talking about the alpaca today but to me it was so important and but we love each other and we, and we right. work it out. We yeah. talk and we so it's all good, right? And all and all these things. I mean, she's we've we've had a lot of challenges this last year, and she's been with me every step of the way, and vice versa. I don't know if we're together or whatever, is, but that time and just having that camaraderie to work through it, you know. And so this continues. So the the reason why I don't want to talk about the alpaca now is we have this baby that shows up like two days ago, right? Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> Not really expected, but here we go again. But this one's having some problems. So the funnier part about this is my mom, on my, by my side and us together for the last 48 hours, have been up every two hours 
feeding this baby. So we're exhausted. And last night at 3 a.m., we have, were laughing so hard because we're so giddy and so, so out of it that we just can barely stand it. But anyway, so that's part of the continuing of this life and death circle of us just being there for each other. And, um, you know, we're working it out. And this baby's head's up right now, so we're just going to keep doing it together. And, and funnier yet was uh, <laughs> I'm waiting at the house for Shauna to pick me up. And um, I'm waiting and waiting, and about 7 after, I go, I called her, I said, aren't you picking me up? She says, no, I thought you were bringing yourself. Right. Well, we're out of it. Yeah, so I said, the last so, thing she told me, she was coming by herself, so we're like, oh, I'll work it out. I come here early. We, we, that's not what I said, but it's okay. I got here. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe in the power of stories. When I was young, I would ask my mother to tell me about Grammy Hazel, who had died a year before I was born. And every time she'd start a story, she'd start crying. She couldn't finish the story because she loved her so much. And so I learned not to ask my mother about this woman. After my mother died, we found uh, 20-some letters that my grandmother Hazel had written to her during World War II. And I actually have the letter she wrote the day that Grammy Hazel died. So I know more about her now than I did when my mom was alive. So <clears throat> now I'm Grammy Hazel. And when I have a chance to be with my grandson for a half an hour in the car, uninterrupted, I share stories with him so that when his kids ask him about his Grammy Hazel, I don't know if he's going to remember all these or not, but he'll have stories to tell, and he'll be able to tell them about me. There's a silver lining in everything. We've heard about them today, haven't we? 